in Alaska, we don't have a lot of roads. The road system down in the lower 48 is much more, uh, makes the landscape much more available for humans to get in. But up here, to get up where the bears might be, I have to fly in a helicopter. And we, we have to take the door off the helicopter and I'm strapped in, you know, harnessed in, and then I have a dart rifle. And um, we approach the bear and I dart it and then we pull off really fast and we wait for the, the bear to go down after getting drugged and that usually takes about two, two, three minutes. And then the bear lays down and then we fly up and land next to it and I get out and process the bear. I'm Sarah Sanders. And I'm Phil Gibson. Welcome to Biota. You are listening to Dr. Carrie Nicholson, a fur bearer carnivore research wildlife biologist for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. She's describing how she tranquilizes and collects information from bears as part of her work to monitor and protect populations of bears and other mammals in Alaska. We'll let her finish by describing how long she has before the bear wakes up and what samples and data she needs to collect before that happens. For the data that I'm collecting and the stuff that I'm doing on the ground with it, no more than 45 minutes. So not only am I putting a GPS collar on them, I take blood samples. So I get genetics and then I get uh, hair samples and I'm doing some stabilizotope work, trying to understand their diet a little bit better. Uh, We have started a project on hormones, like the cortisol status in bears, and then we're doing the gut, well, not the gut biome, but we're, we're still doing um, the microbiome by taking anal swabs for Diana. And so she's going to be looking at that. Dr. Nicholson's work sounds incredibly exciting. I mean, hanging out of a helicopter flying in the Alaskan outback and then working against the clock to collect samples has got to be an adrenaline rush at least the first few times you do it. And it tracks that Dr. Nicholson and other wildlife researchers would collect blood, hair, and hormone samples for genetic and physiology studies. But one part of what she said seemed a little unexpected. She said they collect anal swabs to study the microbiome as part of their conservation efforts. When we first heard about that aspect of her work, we were a bit puzzled. How could information about the gut microbiome be used for planning a conservation strategy for bears or any other mammals? As one of the famous sayings in ecology goes, everything is connected to everything else. So in this episode of Biota, we will learn how researchers are applying the microbiome techniques we learned about in a previous episode to explore how scientists are using gut microbiome data in their efforts to protect mammals in Alaska and other places. We'll also find out what they're learning from those studies and how they're using that information to protect not just mammals, but whole communities and ecosystems. But before we go any further, we need to clarify one important point. What exactly is a fur bearer mammal? Maybe there's something I'm missing, but I thought all mammals by definition were fur bearers. So we asked Dr. Nicholson to clarify that point. A fur bearer includes all mammals, all of which by some definition possess some form of hair, right? But typically within wildlife management, we use that term to identify mammals that have been traditionally trapped or hunted primarily for their fur. They include both carnivores and rodents. And uh, in Alaska, we have 19 species and they are like the beaver, coyote, arctic foxes, red foxes, lynx, muskrat, mink, river otter, squirrels, 
marmots, weasels, wolverine. I'm losing count. One of the fur bearers Dr. Nicholson studies a lot is the American marten, also called a pine marten. Martens are small carnivorous mammals in the weasel family, which includes other mammals like weasels, badgers, otters, fishers, and wolverines. Martens eat other animals as main parts of their typical diet and have the teeth and digestive system features typical of a carnivore. We'll hear more about what those features are shortly. In addition to meat, martens can also supplement their diet with berries and seeds, making them omnivores. This allows martens to eat a lot of different things in their diet, which is important for conservation. So let's get back to Dr. Nicholson, who will explain why she finds martens interesting and important to study, and why carnivorous mammals in particular can be valuable sources of information about ecosystem health where they live. I have focused primarily on American martens. They're kind of considered a fentanyl species and an indicator of forest health. So if your populations are doing pretty good, then it means other aspects of that forest are are most likely just as healthy. They are very important species for trappers, so we want to be able to make that and manage that population to sustain it into the future, not over-harvest it, and still be able to get that economic income from it and have them play their role within the ecosystem. So to summarize what we've learned so far, Wildlife biologists monitor, study, and manage fur-bearer mammals not only for their populations to be harvested by hunters and trappers, but also so that they can perform their natural roles in the ecosystems where they live. Mammals like martens are called sentinel species or indicator species because the health of the individual animals in their populations can be indicators of the health of the habitat where they live. That brings us to our next guest, Dr. Diana Lafferty an assistant professor of wildlife ecology at Northern Michigan University. We spoke with Dr. Lafferty in the previous episode where we talked about the gut microbiome. If you want to learn more about the general features of the gut microbiome and how it's studied, you might want to give that episode a listen. For this episode, we want to dig deeper into how Dr. Lafferty and her collaborators use gut microbiome data to support their conservation research. We'll start by having Dr. Lafferty explain what the gut microbiome is, what it does, and why it's important. Sure. The gut microbiome are the microorganisms that inhabit the gastrointestinal tract, and that might include bacteria, fungi, archaea, um, proteins, viruses, and all together, the genes and genomes of these organisms are what make up the gut microbiome. And it's that gut microbiome that have co-evolved with the species that they inhabit, and they're actually performing a lot of micro-ecosystem services that the host itself hasn't had to develop. So it's really those gut microbiomes that are extracting nutrients, that are aiding that digestion process, that are assimilating energy, and there are so many of these small services that are absolutely critical to the health and well-being of that host. The gut microbiome is really fundamental to our ecology, our evolution, our behavior, our survival, because it is so important in so many metabolic and physiological functions that we can't take for granted the importance of the coevolution between the gut microbiome and its host. Dr. Lafferty specifically studies carnivores. 
They have anatomical and ecological features that make them excellent biological systems for the kinds of questions that she's interested in answering. We'll let Dr. Lafferty explain. My general goal is to try to understand how wildlife populations and their associated communities and ecosystems respond to environmental change. And within that context, I often use carnivores as my model species. And that's because carnivores often come into conflict with humans. So as we modify their environments, we're coming into contact with them more often. Carnivores also have a relatively simple gastrointestinal tract. So the things that go in come out pretty quick, which lets us use them as an indicator for what's going on in their environment because their internal systems um, are a really good reflection of what's happening in the ecosystems they inhabit. Um, They have to have a stable food supply to maintain healthy and stable populations. And with, you know, rapidly growing um, human populations, carnivores are some of the most threatened and endangered species on Earth. Like Dr. Nicholson mentioned previously, martens are valuable study organisms for ecologists because they are indicator species that can tell us about the health of the habitat, specifically forests, where they live. Dr. Lafferty told us how carnivores in general, and martens in particular, can be useful for conservation research. The U.S. Forest Service lists the American martin as one of the many species that can be used as an indicator of forest health. And that's in part because martin are often associated with less disturbed forests. So they let us know how much impact we're having on the forest. You know, how much timber extraction can we engage in before we start seeing a disruption in that martin population? How many roads can go in before we start seeing a decline in that martin population? So they're sensitive to some of those disturbances So they can give us a really great indication of how healthy or how intact that forest is. Because they live in forests, it makes sense that martin populations are sensitive to human activity that causes forest disruptions. You know, things like road building or timber harvests. But what's still unclear is how forest disruptions could be detected in a carnivore's gut microbiome. So we asked Dr. Lafferty to explain how they can use metagenomic data collected from the gut microbiome of carnivore, like a marten, to understand the consequences of environmental disturbances on wildlife. By taking typically fecal samples, um, we can take that gut sample and then we're going to sequence it. And then from those data, which are typically 16S rRNA sequences, so we're actually targeting the bacterial microbial communities, we then use those data in a bioinformatics platform. And from those data, we can ask questions like, how diverse is this microbial community? What is the dominant species that are present? What are those minor taxa? We can ask in what situations do some of these organisms, these microorganisms show up? Um, Where are they sometimes absent? So we can take the DNA, that metagenomic data from these bacterial organisms and correlate it to things such as how much anthropogenic food an organism has been consuming or how disturbed is the landscape with a human footprint, and does that impact that microbial community? So we can really take that metagenomics data 
and pair it up with some on-the-ground ecological data to get some very powerful inferences about how those species are being impacted by different human factors. Dr. Lafferty and her collaborators don't rely on microbiome data alone. They also analyze the gut samples for stable isotopes to determine what the martens have been eating. Stable isotopes are non-radioactive forms of an atom, and they occur in different forms. So in regards to wildlife diets, um, particularly, I've worked with isotopes for a couple different species of bears, as well as Martin and Fisher. We're typically looking at stable carbon and stable nitrogen isotopes, and the ratio of heavy to light isotopes allows us to roughly reconstruct their diet. So we can make relatively general inferences about how much vegetation and how much meat, and oftentimes we can differentiate between how much terrestrial meat and how much meat derived from a marine environment those animals are consuming. So it's a rough estimate because there's certainly some error around all of those measurements, but it gives us a really great approximation for the trophic level or how high up in a trophic pyramid or a food pyramid an animal is consuming. That's a pretty interesting approach to studying ecosystem health. Because different food items will have different stable isotopes in them, the scientists in Dr. Lafferty's lab can determine whether that carnivore was eating primary consumers, you know, insects and other herbivores low on the food chain, or if they're eating animals that are higher in the trophic pyramid. They can also analyze the stable isotopes to determine if the marten is eating food from a terrestrial or aquatic environment. So what have they learned from their studies that combine information about the gut microbiome and stable isotopes? And how is that combination of data giving them a better way to think about conservation and what's needed to protect mammals? Well, some of our earliest Martin work is showing us that animals that live in an intact forest or in a primary forest are foraging at a detectably higher trophic level, so they're consuming more meat than their counterparts that are foraging in a more disturbed ecosystem. And that's letting us see that there are also some minor microbial differences there that are likely associated with a connection between a disturbed habitat and a disruption in the type of food that is available in those spaces. And that can be really helpful as many of our carnivores, um, again, some of them are protected or endangered, Many of them also serve as indicators of ecosystem health. So having that microbiome data complemented with that stable isotope data, we can start seeing how we are disconnecting our carnivores from their primary landscape, um, how the activities that humans are engaging in are potentially disrupting these long-held evolutionary relationships. And as we strive to create you know, great opportunities to try to protect and conserve these species. This can help us better piece together that puzzle so that we aren't just restoring a population of carnivores, but we're restoring all of the ecological processes that are inherent in the evolution of that species. It's adding another layer to our toolbox, our conservation toolbox. Um, we often can 
you know, detect whether or not some of those animals are present um, or not detected in a system, but without going a little bit deeper to understand how are they foraging in that system, at what trophic level do they occur, um, without knowing whether or not we've disrupted that microbial community, we don't necessarily know how healthy that population is. But if we're able to get this metagenomic data and we can understand what variation in that microbial community means for that animal health, for example, is an animal that has great access to all of its optimal foods? Um, does it have a significantly different gut microbiome than an animal that's been foraging on, say, human garbage? Um, if we can see those kinds of differences, if we can identify some of those negative health implications, then that allows us to use that microbiome, again, to help prepare conservation plans that are taking a more holistic approach to the ecology and evolution of those species that we're really interested in conserving. As we brought the interview to a close, we asked Dr. Lafferty to tell us what she thinks is the future of microbiome data in wildlife conservation. I think that wildlife microbial ecology is just starting to take off. Um, as we learn more about specific microbial communities and how they're connected to the host's metabolism, how they contribute to the immune function of that host, we're starting to be able to get a better idea of which microbial taxa are really key to the long-term health of many of these um, host species. And I think we're just getting started on this. Um, there's not much data available on the microbiome of carnivores, so we're just scratching the surface. But I would forecast that in the next five years or so, that understanding the gut microbiome is going to be pretty key in many of our conservation plans, because what we want to be able to do is preserve and conserve healthy populations in perpetuity. But if we're not also conserving the mammals and their microbes, we might not ever achieve that. Because as we continue to disturb these ecosystems, um, we're causing all kinds of stress and other um, less natural implications on these animals. So having that intact microbiome might give them a little bit more of a buffer to help maintain their spaces, their health, um, in the event of our ongoing habitat disruption. That brings us to the end of this episode. We want to thank Dr. Carrie Nicholson and Dr. Diana Lafferty for joining us and telling us about their very interesting work. We learned that fur-bearer mammals like Martins can be important indicators of ecosystem health, not only through being present, but by what their diet tells us about the condition of the habitat and the food available to them. If Martins are living in a disturbed habitat, their microbiome and the stable isotope data will indicate that they're eating lower on the food chain than martins in a healthier, intact forest. Wildlife biologists know this because the gut microbiome is influenced by what an animal eats. If they are able to find the food items that are best for their species' diet, that will be reflected in the diversity of the microbial species in their gut microbiome. But if they are in a disturbed habitat and those food items aren't present, they will have a different community in their gut microbiome. Just like in humans, the gut microbiome can influence and be influenced by the health of the host organism. 
By thinking about these microbes, conservation biologists can not only think about what species are present in an ecosystem, but also whether those species have the community in their microbiome that is also important for their health and survival. Microbiome and stable isotope studies help ecologists better understand what animals are eating, which gives them useful information about what is going on in the ecosystem. This allows conservation biologists like Dr. Nicholson and Dr. Lafferty to take a more holistic approach to protecting carnivore species. Wildlife microbial ecology is a new field of research that has potential to be a game changer in how we approach conservation biology. It can give new insights on processes that we have not previously been able to study. As we've learned in recent episodes, applying existing techniques in new ways and in novel contexts can provide new solutions to the different environmental and biological challenges we currently face. That brings us to the end of this episode. I'm Phil Gibson. And I'm Sarah Sanders. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your microbiome and your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the authors alone. Thank you.